Hey, everybody. We are excited to bring you our guests for this podcast episode. They are amazing. They are friends of ours. They are educators. They have taught us so many things. I'm going to read Kelly's bio, Dr. Kelly Gerbers. Um, And I want to do that from her voice, from her perspective, because when she wrote in, she wrote in first person and it is pretty exceptional. um, So I don't want to change it. So I'm going to read to you Kelly's bio that she wrote. I, Kelly, am an assistant professor of outdoor education and leadership at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. Prior to assuming this role in 2017, I managed outdoor programs at the University of Georgia and Florida State University. Personally and professionally, I am working on identifying spheres of influence where I can create positive change as it pertains to building more inclusive communities. I have a lot of personal work to do and continually have to check my assumptions and actions. The outdoor industry, like many others, is full of histories and influences that create exclusion. When I'm not teaching, I'm learning to do stuff. I'm seriously considering writing a book called Learning to Do Stuff in Your 30s. I didn't start skiing or mountain biking until I was 33. I baked my first loaf of sourdough a few months ago. I've recently started taking virtual piano lessons after a 20 year hiatus. And I love Arby's. Shrugs, she writes. (laughs) All right, everyone, I have the privilege of reading you the bio for Dr. Cunningham Bryant, who holds the Kim T. Adamson Chair in the Honors College at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. She has an extensive experience as an archivist and curator at museums in Philadelphia and New Haven, Connecticut, where she curated exhibits on Afghan war rugs, Black comic book heroes, and ooh, Egyptomania. Egyptomania. She has also done archaeological field work in Egypt, Jordan, and good gracious, Mallorca. Wow. Her research interests are wide ranging and include public history museum curation, digital, digital humanities, East Africa, and decolonizing Oh my goodness. Egyptology. Egyptology (laughs) and art history, among other topics. Alicia earned a BA at University of California, San Diego, double majoring in history and archaeology, and her PhD in Near Eastern languages and (laughs) (laughs) civilization at Yale University. She was a U.S. State Department Education and Cultural Affairs Fellow at the Cairo Museum and Nubia Museum and has worked at museums around the world gathering together collections that have been separated through time. She also serves as Vice Chair of the Board of the Utah Council for Citizens Diplomacy and as Vice President for Governance of the Utah Museum Association. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Y'all get ready for this episode because if you didn't catch all of this, she is going to give it to you. Stay tuned. Here we go. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Why you gave me that one? 
That was so funny. Oh. I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. And this is Success in Black and White. The podcast. Where our mission is to bridge the gap between, between racial, racial boundaries. boundaries. We can't wait to share our stories, tips, and experiences. As well as hear from extraordinary guests. So stay tuned. As we jump into this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Success in Black and White. The podcast. We are back one more again. We are back one more again. We are. We're not alone. We are not alone. I'm really excited about our guests tonight. I am, too. I'm looking forward to this one. This is actually the first time that we've had more than just one other guest. We have two other guests with us. Um, and we're all on, you know, Zoom in the virtual world. And I'm really excited because this is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. So they've heard the bios. So I'm going to let you go ahead and kind of cue them up and let them start talking because I can feel the energy right now coming through, <laughs> through the screen. You know, I can feel the energy coming through the screen. So we want to get this party started and we want to make sure that we give everybody ample amount of time to share their expertise with us today and to share their experiences and their stories and um, why they do what they do. So. so we have Dr. Kelly Gerbers, also AKA my former roommate, Kels. Um, and we have Dr. Alicia Cunningham Bryant and both are from Westminster University. You already heard a lot of this, but I want both of you to tell us a little bit about your life journey, your career path, kind of the life like fulfillment. Why do you do what you do? So let's do this. Let's start with Kelly. Let's have you tell us first. And then Alicia, we definitely want to hear from you after that. Well, April and Daryl, first of all, thank you so much for having us both on. Uh, as Daryl was saying that there was a lot of energy in uh, the space. I think that was code for anxiety and awkwardness. <laughs> so we're just going to channel our energy in quotes. Uh, but thanks again. Um, once again, my name is Kelly. I use she, her pronouns, and I am an assistant professor of outdoor education and leadership at Westminster College here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I've been out here for just about four years. And prior to that, I came from the University of Georgia, where I worked for their outdoor recreation program. Being from the Southeast is a huge part of my identity. And so if we back it up a few more years prior to that, I was at Florida State with Daryl and April working in the campus rec department in a variety of different roles. Um, and I think the thing that sort of defines my calling and career path, and I was trying to think of like a really creative, thoughtful way of saying this, like my passion is working with college students, but it is like that. I couldn't think of a better way to say it other than like, I really truly um, enjoy working with college students. And I think what's been really cool about my field is that I have been mentored by so many of my student employees or students in my classes. And so I think something that's really marked my professional and personal experiences is two-way mentoring. And that's something that I think has been really challenging and fulfilling. And uh, I'm grateful for where I'm at now. I love what I do for Westminster and getting to work with Alicia. And so um, when I'm not actively teaching or doing outdoor recreation things, I'm probably uh, bebopping around downtown in my Crocs and eating Arby's. That is the most um, beautifully Kelly Gerber's description of Kelly Gerber's. <laughs> uh, I'm Alicia Cunningham Bryant. I'm an associate professor in the Honors College at Westminster. I hold Adamson Chair, um, and I'm an Egyptologist. Uh, so, which which is a little different. 
<laughs> there are not that many of us, uh, but I, I really love it. And um, I'm originally from Northern California, uh, grew up there, went to college in Southern California, and then I moved back East for graduate school for 11 years and I was in New England, um, which was a really different, very different vibe. Um, and I'm really excited to be in the mountains now <laughs> in the Mountain West. I'm, I love it out here. And um, I think what's so wonderful about Westminster, um, apart from getting to work with Kelly Gerbers and we currently teach together, so, you know. <laughs> um, but also I, I think the opportunities that it provides for uh, faculty and staff and students to work together on all kinds of different enterprises. Um, everything from exploring the outdoors through programs like Kelly's doing with the field semester to things like um, I run the, uh, the Office for Fellowship Advising and getting to work with students to follow their own passions and find how they want to change the world. Um, and that to me, I think, is what I love most about higher education and my job. I love being an Egyptologist. I love that I got to travel and work in museums and produce history and all kinds of things like that. But I, I genuinely love and am inspired regularly by my colleagues and my students and what they're doing and what they care about and, and the world that they see in the future and helping them produce that. And how can I support them in that? I love it. I want to dig a little bit deeper, Alicia. I want to know why Egypt? Why an Egyptologist? Like, how did you choose that path? Yeah. Um, Solid question. <laughs> so um, I, no one was more surprised than me, I think, when that was what I wound up doing, uh, mostly because when I was a kid, um, I, I was always really passionate about changing the world and making a difference. I like, I was the little kid who stood on like street corners holding homemade signs to protest environmental deregulation in my hometown. <laughs> um, and I was determined to be a lawyer for the ACLU. And by the time I got to college, I started taking pre-law classes and I hated them, which is hilarious because now I teach the same books that I truly hated in college and I love them and I think they're great. So, you know, where you are at 18 is not who you are at 37. Um, but I, I'd always really loved Egypt and, and the more I learned about history and archeology, span um, and I had this incredible archeology span professor in college, the more I realized that the things that drew me to the ACLU and, and sort of doing, um, transformative work on, um, civil rights and litigation were the same things that I cared about in history, that so much of oppression and, um, the removal of rights is grounded in quote unquote tradition or quote unquote history. And these created histories and these created identities and hierarchies and that it's all nonsense <laughs> and, and it's deeply, deeply hurtful and um, negative nonsense that destroys the opportunities for people. And so we can't really address that. We can't, a lot of what we're what winds up happening in the law courts is litigating things that are being reinforced culturally from historical grounds. And um, in order to combat that, so much of what has to be done is to look at the past and actually address it the way it was, elevate indigenous narratives, change the way we're talking about the past in order to 
deconstruct those narratives, to take the wind out of those sails, to remove that opportunity, and to really show the sort of history and power of history of peoples across time, um, and deconstruct this this identity that's been created um, in these hierarchies and in a mechanism for creating empathy, building community and, and reshaping the way we view the world. I love that. And, you know, Alicia and Kelly and I, and sometimes Daryl, are um, in a group where we discuss resources and um, we just really get into really hard topics, I think, for people to talk about or very uncomfortable topics for people to talk about racism and politics and the history of America. And so I just want to say a big thank you to Alicia, because I have learned so much from your knowledge of the history of just various people groups and how they came to be. And I'm like, this, this woman has taught me so much. So I appreciate you. Um, Kelly along the same vein has also taught me so much. And what I want to do is ask why Kelly, why outdoors? What, what was it about outdoors for you? Uh, thank you for that question. I just want to pause and say that I, I appreciate everyone on this call and it is really a, a neat experience to get to learn and, and teach with Alicia this semester because through just like osmosis of being in the same room with Alicia, I just feel like I get smarter. Um, and, I, and I appreciate the nod that I taught you things, but I, I don't know that like teaching effective cranking techniques uh, counts as like knowledge, but either way, I'm grateful to be here. Um, why outdoors? I, you know, if I'm like being totally honest, I did not grow up in what I would consider, and I'm putting this in very, very loose quotes because like this is actually a term that's a little problematic in our industry. I did not grow up in an outdoorsy family. So I'm going to pause there and say like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be outdoorsy? Like I used to play softball all the time. I was outdoors. Like, am I not outdoorsy? Uh, so anyway, like, I think there's, we can spend an entire podcast episode just talking about the term outdoorsy. But I think in terms of our like preconceived notions of what makes someone an outdoors person, I would not grow up in what you would consider those traditional avenues of like camping every weekend and having parents that like, you know, taught me environmental ethics and all that stuff. Like that we just, we spent our weekends at the softball diamond. And so for me, outdoor recreation didn't really become a thing until college when I was chasing a boy because that's how we learn things that are different, right? Um, so, so uh, you know, there, there were people in college that were heavy influences on um, just getting me out and taking me on my first backpacking trip and teaching me how to cook in the backcountry. And uh, most of my experience has either been like largely self-taught or uh, through the kindness and patience of people around me who have uh, like literally shown me the ropes depending on the discipline. And um, there's a lot, I mean, I, I think the reason that I got into outdoor recreation initially is very different than why I've decided to stay in outdoor recreation. Um, in my experiences, being in the outdoors has given me some of the hardest and most profound lessons of my life. It has given me a lot of opportunities to reflect and become more self-aware, think about how I work with others, think about my preferred communication approaches, the things that set me off and how those show up in front country settings. And uh, it's also just such an incredible laboratory to watch students excel. When you have a student who's never pooped in the woods, who after one day of a backpacking trip is in tears saying, I can't do this. And then two weeks later, they are just absolutely crushing it, just sailing up mountains and just their level of confidence. And then when they come back to the to Westminster, like in, in an academic classroom setting, their, their comportment is different. Their level of self-confidence, not in a cocky way, but just in like a way that they know that they can handle 
what life is is throwing at them. Like their self-efficacy is noticeably different. And I think that is just such a cool process to get to be a part of. And so that is why I, I stay in outdoor recreation. But before it was like totally selfish, silly 18-year-old motives. I want to stay with you for a second, Kels. And I want to kind of veer off a little bit more on the I guess the racial and social piece because I'm not a outdoorsy person either and no one in my family is an outdoorsy person and even if you take that back a couple of generations and extended family are not outdoorsy people and then let's take it a step even further I'm not going to say everyone but a lot of people that look like me or the same color as I am are not outdoorsy people um could you talk to us a little bit about kind of how that plays into what you do and, and what you um, have learned about that and, and kind of how you bridge that? Because I know for me to go camping and stuff, I'm like, ah, that ain't my thing. That's not what we do. That's what I say to April all the time. And she's like, well, who, who is we? I'm like, oh, well, I can't speak for all the black people. We, we're not about to go out there for, for whatever reasons. Um, could you talk about that a little bit and just kind of give us a little insight on that? Sure. And, and I, and I appreciate that question. And I will also own that, like, I am learning along with you and along with everyone else in my industry. And it's interesting because as we become more aware as an industry and recognize our shortcomings in uh, perception and how we have historically included or excluded different identities, the flip side of that is that also, I think sometimes we project assumptions on why people aren't recreating. And that is also um, not a good direction to, to take. So I'm trying to approach these types of questions with a lot of humility and say, you know, these are things from my perspective or from my perception, or these are what I'm learning along the way. And so I think Daryl, you brought up one point that is um, probably salient for a lot of folks, which is that like our social endeavors or our values as it pertains to like how we spend, what little free time we all have, um, can be largely influenced by the people around us, right? So I think about the things that I did and didn't do as a young child, and it was like, what were my parents willing to take me out to do, or what was my family willing to afford? And an example that I give in my life is that, like, I never went to sleepaway summer camp, and I never took ski trips. And it is actually really interesting to me now being out west, where, like, it's just this... Um, from my perspective, and maybe again, it's because of the population that I work with, it's like everyone skis and like skiing and snowboarding is expensive. It's expensive to get the gear. It is expensive to get the pass. I can't imagine how much money people spend on ski lessons. And so then when I think about my East Coast friends that are all like really proficient skiers, I'm like, oh my goodness, like how on earth did you all do this growing up? And like, you all are like phenomenal skiers and you probably came out and skied once or twice a year. Um, so I think a lot of it is like in, in terms of, you know, what, what opportunities did we have access to? What could we afford? And that looks really different for everyone. Um, and then of course, cultural values. I'm going to use an example from Westminster. We work with, um, a program called Step Out South Salt Lake, and we work with a young population where a lot of the young kids are, um, from families of refugees. And I was not part of this program when it first started, but it's, uh, it's a thing that we like to reflect on as a, as a program. Now, when we initially started and we came and I'm saying we, the outdoor program, uh, approached, uh, this group of students that we wanted to do some after-school programming with and, and develop an outdoor ethic. There were all these great ideas to like, take them on an overnight camping trip. Like, let's get them out in the woods. Let's do an overnight camping trip. And the program coordinators and students involved in the program were schooled very quickly uh, by these young students who were like, hey, just so we're like, I just spent three months in a refugee camp sleeping outside on the ground like that. 
like these two experiences, like what you're presenting to me does not sound like something that sounds fun. Like that sounds like it's going to bring up um, some experiences for me that like were not enjoyable and, and in a lot of ways, probably very, very traumatic. And so I think um, as an industry and as individuals working within that industry, we have to be very, very careful to not make assumptions about what is good for me is good for we. But we also shouldn't make assumptions that, oh, um, this person's not going to like this activity, right? So I think it's like having a dialogue. It's like, hey, tell me a little bit about what your experience has looked like on the weekends. What do you do for fun? Um, and part of it is also reframing how we define outdoor recreation, because I will um, fervently argue that like, if you sit out on a park bench reading a book outside, you are recreating outside. Um, if you play pickup soccer or pickup basketball or whatever that case may be, like whatever your hobby of choice is, if you're outdoors, you are engaging in outdoor recreation. If you do community picnics at the park. And so I think as an industry, we need to um, widen our lens, which right now is really, really narrow in terms of how we're defining recreation. And then this weird hierarchy that's happened with, um, you know, these elite mountaineers or backpackers or these like specific types of recreational activities that are all of a sudden lauded as better than versus again, like the family picnic at the state park and just having an appreciation for anyone that like wants to spend time outside. So Daryl, I don't know if I answered your question, but I feel like I'm waxing a little poetic, but just that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now, I think, as it pertains to this particular um, opportunity to, to learn more and kind of check ourselves as far as where we're at. You know, you did. You answered my question in a couple of different ways. And, and I know April was saying, like, learning from you. And I never thought about a piece that you just said about the affordability. Um, like, I was thinking, you know, that's just not what we did culturally. Um, but now that you said that my parents could not afford to take me and my five siblings out to do anything. I mean, to buy tents for all of us, if we're talking about outdoors camping, to buy tents for all of us, um, the travel, you know, and everything that we would need for that. I just think the affordability wouldn't be there. And when you're talking about the snowboarding and, and the, the snow sports and things like that, like I didn't get to do that until I was in college and I saved up my own money and I went, you know, with a group of friends that either had extra gear um, or, you know, I kind of figured out how to rent gear. Um, so I think that affordability piece is, is um, something that, you know, I just took away from that because uh, most times, you know, the people that I hang around with, like, we don't talk about that. We talk about it from a cultural perspective, but I mean, if you dig a little bit deeper, um, I think that's just important. And then another thing that you said was um, that that forcing people or, you know, trying to get people to buy in and there may be trigger points um, that you're just not aware of. And, and that piece right there, I, you know, just kind of I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so true, because I know I do the same thing in, you know, activities that I like to do. I'm like, oh, no, just try it. Like, I'm, I'm sure you'll like it if you try it. Um, and you know, I disregard any of those, you know, those triggers or, or things that could um, make it a negative experience for them. So I want to ask you all, I want to switch gears just a little bit. I want to ask both of you because you're both teaching a class together, right? Yes. So what is it? First of all, what is the class that you're both teaching? Because we have an Egyptologist and we have an outdoors person. So what class is it that you're teaching and what is either gratifying about it and or what are you learning from each other so alicia will have you go first 
The class is Environments in the Space of Art. So it's great because we really do get to bring both of our sets of experience to it. Um, I, I think there are a lot of things that are really gratifying about it, but I'll, I'll start with what I'm learning from Kelly. Kelly is an incredible educator. She understands students and where they're at and how to communicate to students in a way that I have never seen and which has fundamentally improved me as a teacher. Like I, I am a better educator, whatever we are six weeks into teaching with Kelly than I was six weeks ago. And, and I like, no, no lie today in another class I teach with another faculty member explained a Kelly process to this other faculty member and he was like blown away. He's now using it all the time. So um, Kelly, you have impacted Nick Moore's life. Oh, geez, that's a high compliment. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, she's, her approach to bringing, um, as she just mentioned with you, Daryl, um, this sort of compassionate reflective approach to what the environment is and and non-western environments is really powerful and and how can we engage with that um as as audience members as participants and what does it mean for the environment itself as well as for um the populations that are impacted by it or produce it it's she's incredible and i'm feel incredibly lucky to teach with her um i think the what I find really gratifying about the class is um, the the theme that we're using this semester for it is graffiti, and um, I I love this theme, <laughs> um, even though it's a really difficult theme, because graffiti as a term has so much weight. It has so much baggage, and um, and it's. Uh, and that baggage is is actually fairly recently applied. It's it's a um, American 1970s change, <laughs> and and when you're looking at graffiti in the ancient world all the way through the 1970s in New York, graffiti is not a bad word. It's not a negative thing. It is a description of writing in a public space. <laughs> That's all it is, and and so. Uh, what I love about and what I find so gratifying about this class is having students engage with that change and all of the baggage they're bringing and all of the cultural expectations they have to it and then having to have like real conversations with themselves and each other and with us about that bias, about all of that culture and experience that has impacted their lives and that they're projecting backwards or forwards. And what does that actually mean for the environment, for cultures, for art, and how can we sort of unpack that in um, different ways to elevate other voices? Y'all just got a really awesome snippet of what it's like being in class with Alicia. And so I, I Alicia, thank you very much for those kind words um, and to, um, to offer some insight on what it's like teaching with Alicia. Alicia has taught me how to think. Like, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but just even the way that she just framed that conversation, like it's unpacking a lot of, it's first being aware of the assumptions that we make and looking at history as this incredibly long scope and we're just getting this tiny little sliver and recognizing how our tiny little sliver influences the way that we perceive the world. 
Um, and so from Alicia, like I have totally learned a different way of, of thinking, but also how helping students think how to think. And so it's interesting watching Alicia help students unpack a really dense piece of text or look at multiple interpretations of a particular artifact. And it's interesting because this particular theme, um, Alicia co-taught this class with a different co-instructor in the fall. And just due to some staffing changes, uh, Alicia stepped in at the last minute to teach with me this semester. That was not the original game plan. And so we both said, hey, like we don't have a lot of time to make a lot of curricular changes. Would it, I mean, it seems like that, that theme was a success last semester. Do you feel comfortable moving forward with that theme this semester. And it was like, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Um, I am not, uh, I am not um, an expert in graffiti by any means. And so it's been also really interesting for my discipline. Um, and not that Alicia is an expert in all types of graffiti. You know, she um, has specific disciplines that she's spent a lot of time with and ones that are brand new for her. And so it's really fascinating because as we're planning for these classes, uh, like I taught a unit on East Asian rock art a couple of weeks ago, and I am like actively learning along with the students and owning that with the students and saying, hey, all like, this is new to me too. So let's learn, let's, let's, you know, discover this together and let's think about how we can take this particular unit and apply what we're learning from this unit into like classes outside of learning about graffiti or like, again, just different ways of how to think. But it's, it, I, I can't say enough great things about team teaching experiences because um, Alicia and I are very lucky in that in our particular fields, we get to team teach a lot. And, you know, it's kind of one of those crapshoots. It's like having a roommate. And I'm really grateful that April was a phenomenal roommate. Uh, but it's one of those things where like, you can be really good friends with someone and then live with them. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm never talking to that person again, or more likely they're never talking to me again. And I think team teaching is, uh, is the same way, right? Like you can have a really good professional or personal relationship and then realize that teaching styles actually don't align and it creates a lot of uh, contention in the classroom. And so I've just been really grateful. You know, we've got two thirds of the semester left, but I'm confident that uh, the first, the first third of the semester has been awesome. It's been so um, rewarding and enriching and it feels really, um, it feels like time well spent. And so I'm excited to see what the second part of the semester looks like too. Awesome. So the graffiti is basically the tool to initiate the conversation. Like mm -hmm. it, and that's kind of what I took from it. I was like, that's like, that's genius. Like mm -hmm. find something that a lot of people or people want to you know, like be involved with or engage with and use it as a tool to initiate the conversation. Because as soon as you said graffiti, I was like, come on, let's go. Like you talk to me. Like, I, got some, I got some spray paint cans in the garage right now. And I was all for it. And then as you started talking to Alicia, I was just like, wait a minute, this is a trick. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, sort of, but also, the, um, one of the reasons we chose graffiti is exactly that reason, Daryl, because it's an access issue, right? Like people feel that art, especially environmental art is outside of their context, that it has no immediacy for them. And, and so like, if I said you go find some environmental art, you're gonna like have to Google where somebody made like an art installation in a, in a park maybe and go find it. Like it doesn't occur to you that graffiti as you experience it day to day is art. It is absolutely art and it's accomplishing um, for the population all of these things, the same things that humans have been experiencing and writing on walls since we started being people. <laughs> so, um, and, and it is an incredible art form. The fact that you've got spray paint in the garage and you can do graffiti speaks to why graffiti is so exciting and necessary. It's, it's like the people's art. It is the everyday art that we experience. And, 
and it has all of these modern negative cultural connotations to it, particularly tied to racist white supremacist agendas <laughs> um, and neoliberal capitalist problems that, that fundamentally underpin how it is experienced today that people have removed it as art, but it is art. It is absolutely art and there is nothing wrong with it. It's a, it's a fundamental part of the human experience. And so helping and, and working through that, I think is so exciting because it, to your point, it's a trick. It is a trick, but it's more about getting students to see what's directly in front of them, to re-engage with their environment. Because for all of the claiming that, well, graffiti is just graffiti, their view of graffiti is so bound in their experience of graffiti as a negative, as a marker of bad space, of dangerous space, because again, it's all bound in negative, racist, white supremacist cultural structures that getting them to then look around and be like, oh no, actually graffiti is art. This is part of the artistic experience of my life. And just because I don't understand it doesn't make it less valuable. That's so important. And, and I want to I want to tie this into our next question for you both, because I think at this point, our audience is probably very aware that you both care very greatly about social and racial justice. And I want to, I want to dig into why. Um, and so, and so Kelly, let's start with you. Why is social and racial justice so important to you? I appreciate this question and I would be remiss if I did not own my own personal history because it's really key to, I think, understanding where I come from and where I'm at now and all the work that I have to do. And um, I put this, when I was reflecting on this question ahead of time and thinking through, uh, Alicia said something earlier, uh, we're very different when we're 18 than we are when we're 37. And that really resonated with me because um, when I was growing up and, and even through undergrad, I don't think, no, not I don't think, racial and social justice wasn't important to me um, because I didn't, understand or perceive that it had direct impact on me. So at best, I was uninformed. At worst, I was ambivalent. And that feels hard to, to acknowledge now, and it feels hard to say now. And it's also the truth. And it wasn't until I came down, and I, I can't say enough positive things about my experience at Florida State and working in what was then the Center for Leadership and Civic Education. Now it's the Center for Leadership and Social Change, um, where I had, I got checked a lot. And I don't even think I realized that I was getting checked. I was having opportunities to have deep, meaningful relationships with people's, people whose experiences were really different than mine. I don't think I realized at the time, but I was really resistant to acknowledging that experience for them because it wasn't my experience. And so it took, and, and also like, you know, I, I love my family. Um, I love my family a lot. And that was the first time in my life that I'd realized like, oh, ideologically, politically, uh, religiously, like I don't align with a lot of the close members of my family and like coming to terms with that and being not only being okay with that, but like defending where I'm at um, and trying to figure out how to like love people that I care about that have been so kind and caring for me and also like vehemently disagree with particular viewpoints. Um, so that being said, I think um, to your original question of like, why is it important? Um, because we all, we all benefit when we have um, access and equity in our systems. We all benefit from it. And so it's not um, something else that I thought about is like, um, particularly in, in 
the academic field um, and maybe in higher education in general is like we shouldn't be pursuing issues of equity, diversity and inclusion as problems to solve or like the checkbox solution, because like that's like creating diversity and equity within our programs and our systems like creates benefit. It creates learning. Like we're talking about that right now in our environments, in the space of art class. And so it should be a through line in everything that we do. It should be a filter by which we make decisions rather than having like the one day where we talk about social justice in class, right? Um, and so I think that's been something that's been a really cool takeaway when I'm planning curriculum is like thinking about um, what authors am I using? What resources am I using? How am I elevating versus tokenizing and, and, and striving for representation? Um, and and that, that can be a fine line. And sometimes it takes a couple of filters to say like, hey, I want to use this resource. Does, does it make sense to use in this way? Am I doing that in a way that's respectful and elevating um, this particular person in a way that um, that is serving that purpose versus tokenizing, which can be really difficult in outdoor recreation in particular. But um, so, yeah, I, I think to summarize, um, it's it benefits everyone. Um, and we have a responsibility for those of us that hold particular positional power or power and privilege based on the identities that we hold. Like we have a responsibility to use that um, to for good and to make change. I love that you said that Kelly. And I just, I want to take a minute before Alicia responds, just to acknowledge that you are open about what you, what your past was and that maybe you didn't care as much in your past. I can say the exact same thing for me when I was 18, I grew up in a small town of no diversity. And so there was no impact on me directly. And I love that you're openly acknowledging it because I think that if people in our society were able to do that and able to do it as openly and honestly and transparently as you just did, I think we would have a better society. I just think that there is a lack of empathy. And so I really, I appreciate and thank you for sharing that very honestly and very transparently. Um, Alicia, I'd love to hear for you, why is social and racial justice so important? Because you are very, very passionate about it. And I've learned a lot from you on this too. So please share. Ultimately, I think the issue for me is that I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. I'm a person who is by my very identities, exceptionally lucky. I'm a straight cisgendered white lady from an upper middle class background in Northern California. <laughs> and, um, I, and I think, I know, cause much like Kelly, I, I had to reflect on this for a while um, about what was really at the heart of it for me. And I think it was the fact that I am so lucky and there is absolutely no reason that that should make my life easier. <laughs> it's like the divine right of Kings. That is not a real thing. And there is no, there is no reason, there's nothing inherent about me that means I should have the opportunity and access that I have as a result of those identities. And they're just descriptors. Like they should not be good or bad. There shouldn't be a hierarchy of them. There shouldn't be a reason why that affords me privilege. The fact that it does is wrong. It just is wrong. And everyone should have the support I did. Everyone should be able to get as quote, as lucky as I am. It shouldn't, 
if we are the society that we claim to be, one that is ostensibly meant to be a meritocracy, then it should be based on merit. The fact that we've tied merit to identity is wrong. <laughs> that is not, and, um, and to Kelly's point, diversity and equity and inclusion, they make the world better. We are better when more people are not just at the table, but are leading the discussion. I learned so much from, from all of the people that I work with, but even more so the people who've been marginalized and who've had a harder time to get there. And, and it is my job from my position of privilege to elevate those other people. You, I, there is nothing particularly great about me. <laughs> I have had I so many opportunities. No, I mean, I'm serious. I am in, I got to go to private schools from kindergarten through 12th grade. That's insane. I have two parents who have PhDs. I, I am not in debt from loans for college. I went to graduate school that was paid for by the school I went to, and it paid me to go to school there. I was able to buy a home by myself. That's insane. The, it, it, not that it happened, that other people don't get to do that too. And I think that social, like social and racial justice, it's just necessary. It's not, a, it's not an optional choice. It shouldn't be about luck. It should be that we all have equity and that means elevating others <laughs> so that they can not just have the opportunities and the access, but that they are supported through that opportunity and access. I think that like what stood out the most to me and I see it differently probably than April does because that just hit me differently. The fact that um, you two put in the work and started with yourself first, um, I feel like for me, that's what um, I really appreciate because I know that I have conversations with other people and like their immediate response is, all right, let's go out and let's do and they never take the time for that self-reflection piece and to identify those pieces within themselves and educate themselves. And the fact that both of you all started out with that first and acknowledged that you had to do some internal work so that you can put yourself in a space to receive you know, the education and the knowledge to be able to now go forth and do what you're doing is what I appreciate. All the other stuff is great too. And, and I think that, um, you know, it's the way that you all put it was very elegant and, and I agree with it, but the self-reflection piece and the internal piece is for me is what resonated with me. Um, and from me to you two, I appreciate that. And I think that a lot of other people um, would appreciate that as well, because a lot of times you don't get that. It's kind of like you said, Kelly, with the, all right, what can we do to check this box and say that we you know, have diverse this or we are um, including diversity in, in that. Um, but without that, without that inclusive piece or that equity piece, um, I think it was you, Kelly, that said it's just tokenism. Mm -hmm. Diversity without in inclusion or equity is tokenism. Mm -hmm. So 
And if you don't mind me jumping in, I think another piece to that and in terms of the self-reflection is also like, um, I identify as white, Alicia identifies as white, um, April, you identify as white, like white guilt is a thing and it is not useful. Um, and that is not to say that it is not there. And so I think a lot about like when actions, decisions, and motivations, like trying to figure out like the source of those actions, decisions, and motivations and recognizing that sometimes that is coming from a place of white guilt and having to like check that and say like, this is not useful, like reframe. Um, and that's uh, like, I would love to say that that is something that is just overcome, but, um, I think that's a constant daily struggle and uh, it's an opportunity to like check myself and uh, I'm certainly not perfect I think about um, my like instances of complicitness um, like that one feels really tough and um, so I, I appreciate um, your acknowledgement and also like it's it, to Alicia's point like it's not um, we shouldn't be doing this for accolades we shouldn't be doing it um, to make ourselves feel better we shouldn't be doing it to assuage our white guilt we should be doing it because like ethically it is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I like that you talk about checking the box, because I think that is a huge portion of what we're seeing right now. And it's really a good lead in to our next question, but I want to um, preface it with, with just saying that, you know, a lot of organizations, institutions, you know, I think people in general, you can tell either they're, they really care and they're really doing the work or they're just checking the box. I think that's easy to see. But I think for organizations, for institutions of higher education, which we all on, on this call work at, it's harder to see that they're, <laughs> it's harder to tell if it's performative or if it's real. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that's been going over and over in my head recently is a lot of institutions are starting up anti-racism tasks, task forces, or like DEI committees. And let's start, let's start fixing the problem. Let's fix this. Let's check the box. Let's change this. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things. I think they're necessary. I think they're an important part of the process. But recently I've been thinking about the fact that we're not starting with dismantling white supremacy. And maybe that's where we should be starting because until we understand the problem, we can't get to the proper solution. And so I've just recently been seeing things, I've, I've been seeing initiatives come through that I'm like, I just don't understand how we got here. Or like, what are you framing this around? And I think as I reflect on that, I'm like, I don't think we've ever identified at a PWI, so a predominantly white institution, that we that we have been built upon and we still run on policies and procedures and systems that are white supremacy based and until we can get administration and until staff and students can acknowledge that we can't move forward with anything anti-racism or diversity equity and inclusion and have it actually stick and continue to be present. And so I want to ask both of you because you're at an institution of higher education and you know, I don't mind calling out institutions of higher education, but as a field, as a whole, how do you see institutions of higher education in this DEI atmosphere? What is, are we doing it right? Are there institutions you see that are doing it right? What can we do better? And what is the climate? 
Alicia, you can go first. (laughs) Oh boy, the climate. (laughs) I mean, hypothetically, it's improving. If you look at, like to your point, April university diversity statements and job ads that they're posting now, like theoretically, sure. I would say though that nothing is really substantively changing. It's sort of a lot of talk with very little actual action. And um, I, I agree. I think it's it's bounded in the fact that there are so many white supremacist and um, policies and structures in place that are embedded mechanisms that perpetuate that same white patriarchal system. Um, and it can wind up feeling like, I don't know, like you're trying to clear a beach by like picking up grains of sand at a time. Like you don't even know how many things are out there that are part of the system that are actually reinforcing it. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, I run into it all the time and, and, um, and so I think in, in like a positive note, there is greater commitment from higher level administrators to actually make change. Um, But it does still mean that you are having to bring very specific issues to their attention to be addressed as opposed to sort of this massive disentangling and dismantling of these structures. Um, and, And even then it's a process and yeah, it, it, that there are so many, so many structures that exist that hold it back. I, I, I do think though, like I said, there's, there's more opportunities from administrators. There's also more opportunities from donors to commit to support um, opportunities for students. And I actually think that that might make a substantive difference. (laughs) I know it does for my students, uh, that they're willing to actually acknowledge it and commit to creating not just the occasional scholarship, but actual programs that support the students once they show up. That you're doing diversity initiatives that create first generation scholar programs with mentors, mentorship, opportunities, funded internships, so students aren't expected to do non-paid internships. Um, that they're providing funding for graduate school applications so they don't have to come up with $150 for every school they want to apply to. I think those kinds of opportunities exist, and that's exciting to me, that there is, at least externally now, a thought about those processes and issues and how to address them, which wasn't true even five years ago when I started doing this work. That's a really tough response to follow. Uh, And I agree with everything that Alicia brought up in terms of like the things that feel abstract or theoretical right now versus the things that actually um, are creating like tangible, actionable change and results. And I think Alicia's point that it's not just enough to create a doorway, but like it doesn't do a student or a faculty member or a staff member any good if you invite them to the party and then give them no resources when they're there. Um, that's like a really quick way to have that person have a really bad experience and not persist. And so I think about, and a lot of this is from my outdoor recreation lens, um, which is a really uh, changing, but currently still very homogenous community in terms of visible diversity, both in terms of gender, race, ability, um, 
size is something that we we don't often talk about in terms of like an exclusive category but uh size is a huge piece of what we do in outdoor recreation and, and representation matters you know that's something that we've talked about earlier today and um this is uh the next chapter in the ongoing saga of kelly's a hypocrite um but I remember um, at, a, at a different time in my career being very frustrated with the hiring process that I felt like um, from my limited perspective uh, was putting someone in a position that I didn't think at the time was qualified without acknowledging that in the course of my professional career, I have probably been hired not because I didn't have talents and skills, but because I was a, am a woman. Um, and I would love to tell myself that, um, I earned that job by the virtues of my own merit. And I think that I earned that job once I was there. Um, but the reality is we needed women to represent this field. And there were a lot of things that I didn't know. And so for me, again, feeling deep shame of how hypocritical I was when looking at some different search pro uh, processes. And that's not to say that women aren't, um, exceptionally qualified to do a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. But I think it's reframing what we consider qualifications, because the reality is, at least in outdoor education, like every system looks a little different. You'll go to one school and they use different tents and different stoves. And so you're relearning things anyway. So it's this idea of like, why are we prioritizing all of these very specific technical skills or all of these really expensive trainings where someone needs to have spent $20,000 to be a professional mountaineer or take all these classes when like, are those things that we can provide training on the job? Like, does this person understand how to make decisions? Does this person want to work with people? Does this person demonstrate a commitment to being organized and supporting the people around them? Like, I think so much of what we need to do, not just without the recreation, but in higher education in general, is like reframe qualifications because like people can learn, people are willing to learn. And so I think it's like um, being able to elevate, uh, so we call it like funds of knowledge or community assets, right? So it's like, um, example for my industry, I might have a student who is really interested in becoming a troop leader and has a lot of anxiety because they haven't spent a lot of time in uh, the outdoor fields that we often prioritize. So it's like you have the person that went to sleepaway summer camp for 17 years um, and like, you know, can light a fire with a bow drill versus someone that like can't, uh, and just for the record, I cannot light a fire with a bow drill. Um, but then you may also have a student that spent five years babysitting, maybe babysitting for money, maybe babysitting their family, but like they understand how to like keep young people alive while managing like a lots of different things at the same time. Like both of those skills are really, really valuable. In fact, I would maybe argue that the babysitter managing five kids at one time is more applicable than like being able to light a fire with a bow drill. Um, but those are not the things that show up on job applications or like come work for us um, if you have you know these experiences. So I think we as a as a as, as the industry of higher ed, um, when it comes time to hiring folks, uh, we know that representation matters. We know that it matters for mentorship. So reframing what um, what can help someone be successful in a job. Oh man, I love it. <laughs> I, I I'm just learning so much. I continue to learn so much from both of you and I'm just so grateful for both of you. Um, let's do this because we definitely want to be respectful of the time for both of you and for our audience. Um, let's do this. If you were to say like in one or two sentences, what the most impactful thing that you have done to educate yourself in social and racial justice recently has been, what would that be? Whoever wants to start can start on this one. 
I can start if that's okay. This, this may seem like a small step, but it has felt really significant to me. And that is reading literature by authors of color um, and a wide range of types of literature. Um, so things related to current events and issues and also like horror and fiction. And um, that has been just, um, it's helped educate me. It's been fulfilling and entertaining. And it's something that I plan to continue to do. I'm going to say book club. <laughs> I, I really, um, I get so much from the readings and the podcast listening and the conversations that we have on Monday nights. I also value the commitment of my time to it. I'm someone who um, overcommits often. And so actively like blocking out time in my schedule to do the reading, to do the prep, and then to be there and have the conversations has been really powerful for me. And, and setting it aside, it makes me rethink um, the kinds of readings I'm assigning my students, the kinds of choices that I'm making in in the work that I'm doing, the kinds of choices I'm making on a day-to-day -day basis in non-work-related contexts, uh, and how am I framing that and talking about it to communities that would not necessarily be engaged in anti-racist conversations and social justice and racial justice conversations, and how to approach those spaces thoughtfully, openly, but also with a clear eye and a clear lens and multiple perspectives. And so that's been really powerful for me and really a uh, useful space. Me too. Me too. Me three. Uh, we, let's, we want to give all of our guests a chance to tell people how they can either connect with you Right. or follow you if you're on social media and that's an easier thing to manage because I understand the email dilemma, especially if you work in a faculty position in higher ed. Um, so either email or social media to follow you. How can people get connected with you both if they want to ask you things or just see what you're doing? How can they connect with you? Alicia, after you. <laughs> You can, I, I mean, you're welcome to email me. Um, my email address is acb at westminstercollege.edu. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at Miss Maraway, M-I-S-S-M-E-R-O-E. -E. Um, if you want to see pictures of me and my dog and my horse, <laughs> that's mostly what my Insta is. <laughs> And um, my, my social media handles are still active, but are very inactive. Uh, I just made a choice last year to spend more time listening to audiobooks, and it's been great. Uh, so I would echo Alicia and say, best way to get in touch with me is to email. Uh, I don't know if I'm assuming our bios are posted on the website or with this podcast, but it's also kgerbers, G-E-R-B-E-R-S, at westminstercollege.edu. Would love to hear from you. And also just want to give a huge thanks to Daryl and April for not only having us on, but having a really great podcast, being part of um, our Monday night discussions and just being like genuinely incredible people and friends. So this has been really great to get to connect with you all in this capacity because I've been a fan of the podcast for a long time. I, I echo that. Thank you both so much. This is super fun. And it's great to talk to you in this space as well as in our other spaces. It's incredible. And your podcast is fantastic. Thank you. We appreciate it. And I think you both said it throughout your answers somewhere in the episode. Um, maybe not in these words, but through 
conversations is how we bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where um, the differences are addressed and hopefully the resolutions come from. Um, and it all starts with having a conversation, so. And we appreciate your conversation tonight. So thank you. All right. Until the next time. We are out. Bye. Peace. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Success in Black and White, the podcast. The podcast. Music podcast. engineered and produced by DJ Vance. Remember that you can join our email list at successinblackandwhite.com for more ways on how you can help bridge the gap between racial boundaries. I'm April. And I'm Daryl. We're We're out. out.